morning, everyone. It has been an eventful week in the life of our church, church camp. We've had mission trips. Several of our folks journeyed to Cincinnati, Ohio to attend the North American Christian Convention this last week. Many of our Crossroads families are returning from or leaving on family vacations. And this week we will celebrate our nation's 239th birthday on July the 4th. But I know the celebration is going to feel a little bit hollow for me this year because of a decision that was made by the Supreme Court this past week to legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Maybe some of you saw the White House bathed in uh, the colors of the LB, LGBT community. I had the same feeling 42 years ago when the Supreme Court legalized abortion. And once again this past week, a moral issue was reduced to a political issue so it could be voted on. And in 1973, the court decided that a child being formed in the womb of its mother was not God-given life, and therefore it can be eliminated. And now in 2015, the court has decided that God-ordained marriage should be redefined and the biblical family restructured. The abortion decision has had grave consequences too numerous to mention. And likewise, the same-sex marriage decision will have grave consequences in the lives of um, multitudes of people for generations to come. And sadly, once again, many of the victims will be innocent children. Make no mistake, this recent vote by the court represents a giant step away from God's will. God's best. But I want to assure you that I and your pastors and your elders will faithfully stand firm on the sacredness of marriage as it has been ordained by our Creator God and revealed in His Word. Now, as Christ followers, I think it would be good for us to keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, this is nothing new, friends. First century Christians, European Christians in history have dealt with worse defections from biblical morality in the culture. And they survived. And in fact, they thrived in such times. And over the past several months, we have watched state after state, 36 of them in all, 36 out of 50, have legalized same-sex marriage. So I think we knew it was coming. I I just think that we didn't have any idea it would come so fast. And we have prayed hard that it would not happen. But our national leaders and many of our people have forgotten God. So it's nothing new. Secondly, keep in mind that it should not defeat our spirits. It should not defeat our spirits. We'll lose some battles along the way. But hey, we win the war. We already have the ultimate victory. Light will dispel even the deepest darkness. And in fact, it shines more brightly when the darkness deepens. Jesus said so. 
And he demonstrated the victory over the power of evil by rising from the dead. So here's my twofold plan going forward. Let me just share it with you, and you may want to adopt it yourself. First of all, I'm just going to pray harder for wisdom and for guidance for our national leaders. I'm going to pray harder for myself to be wise, to be discerning about what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, how to respond, how not to respond. I want to keep grace and truth together in my life going forward. And secondly, I want to renew myself. I want to redouble my efforts to outlive and outlove everybody in my circle of acquaintance, everybody in my circle of influence. As Christ followers, let's do that. Let's outlive and outlove everybody. And if we do that and pray for wisdom and guidance, we will continue to quietly, systematically, intentionally, strategically build the loving reign of Jesus in the lives of expanding numbers of people. We're just going to keep on building the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me? Father God, I just thank you that even in the worst of times that we have a rock under our feet, we know that because of Jesus in our lives, uh, we have our heads on straight and our hearts right. We're able to discern what's best. And we're able to see through some of the things that are happening in our culture that are destructive. And Lord, help us to continue to be those who are involved in a conspiracy to rescue lost people wherever we find them, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families. We pray, Lord, uh, this won't change a thing. Um, We know that things around us will change, but we don't have to change with them. We want to be careful not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We recommit ourselves to that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, this weekend we begin the first of five messages on the authority and the vitality of the Bible. It's closely related to what I have just said, and we're simply calling this series The Word. Nothing fancy, nothing exotic here, uh, nothing complicated We're calling it the Word. And if you faithfully worship here at Crossroads for the next four consecutive weeks, I want to make a promise to you. I want to promise that you'll come away from this series of message with a greater confidence in and a greater love for God's Word. Here's the way it will unfold. We're calling it the Word, and the bookends are the Word breathed by God and the Word shared with the world. And then in the middle, we're going to talk about receiving the implanted Word. How do we do that? Remaining in the Word, the importance of remaining in the Word. And then how the Bible, the Word, reveals Jesus, reveals the living Word. So this is where we're going these next four weeks. So why do we need to invest time to hear teaching from the Bible about the Bible? Well, let me illustrate it this way. The Green Bay Packers have won more world championships than any other team in the National Football League history. They have won 13 world championships. Green Bay is the only NFL team to win 
three straight titles, and they actually did it twice. In addition, Green Bay won the first two Super Bowls back-to-back. And some of you men know Vince Lombardi was the head football coach of the Packers, and he was responsible for five of those 13 world titles. And in fact, the Super Bowl trophy presented each year is named in his honor. It's called the Lombardi Trophy. So what was the secret of the Packers' success? Well, when Lombardi was asked that question, he replied, it's simple. He said, I begin each opening season practice session by holding up a football and saying, this is a football. (laughs) He said, I do this so new players will understand how important I believe that the fundamentals are, and so returning players will be reminded of how strongly I hold to the basics. Well, I think that says it for me. In this five-week series, we're going to hold up the Bible. We're not going to hold up a football. We'll hold up a Bible, and we will say, this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. This is what we believe, and we're doing it so that our new people, exactly 1,618 of them, in the last five years, as of last weekend, so these new people can know what we believe and where we stand. And so those of you who've been in the church for many years can be renewed in your commitment to the Word, the living Word, the Word of truth, the Word of life. George Barnett conducted a survey in 2002 to test the Bible knowledge of professed Christians, and here's what he found out. He found out that 48% could not name the four Gospels. 50% thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. That's a problem. 52% could not identify more than three of Jesus' 12 disciples. 60% could not name five of the Ten Commandments. 61% believed Billy Graham preached the Sermon on the Mount. 71% thought the statement, God helps those who help themselves, was actually a Bible text. And George Barna concluded, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they do not know what it says. We have become a nation of biblical illiterates. And that begs the question, why is that? And I think the answer is that many are just not convinced at a practical level, they're not convinced of the Bible's value. They, they don't identify with the psalmist in Psalm 19, verse 9. The psalmist wrote, the words of the Lord are more desirable than the finest gold. They are sweeter than the purest honey. There is a great reward for those who obey them. I think the inability to feel the expression in this verse from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament has caused some detractors to weigh in with very shallow criticisms of the Bible. For example, Mark Twain said, the Bible has noble poetry in it, some clever fables, some blood-drenched history, some good morals, a wealth of obscenity, and upwards of a thousand lies. That's Mark Twain. And then Miley Cyrus recently went on record about the Bible. Here's what she said bluntly. We've outgrown that fairy tale. (laughs) Contrast these two statements with 
Woodrow Wilson's conclusion about the Bible, past president, when you've read the Bible, you will know it is the Word of God. And then I like what Abraham Lincoln had to say about the Bible. He said, in regard to this great book, I have but to say, it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave or the Savior brought to the world was communicated through this book. But for it, we could not know right from wrong. All things most desirable for man's welfare here and hereafter are found portrayed in it. Here's the thing. We'll each make up our own minds about the Bible, and we'll live with the rewards or the consequences of regarding or disregarding its words. One thing is certain. The Bible is the most popular book in the world. You remember the book and the movie back in 2003, The Da Vinci Code? It was the number one best-selling novel for 26 consecutive weeks. That's six months. The Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time. The Da Vinci Code sold over 60 million copies in three years. Between 20 and 30 million Bibles are printed and distributed each year, year after year. The Da Vinci Code has been translated into 44 languages. That's impressive. The Bible has been translated into over 1,800 languages. So what is there about this book that causes people to rethink and change their lifestyles? and realign their values and even risk their lives to get it to others? Why is it so profoundly influential to some and so militantly resisted by others? Why is it so universally revered or ridiculed? Why is it so controversial? Let me take you to the passage in the Bible that asserts both its authority and its values, its in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here it is. This is my message this morning in a single sentence. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul says that Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it finds its source, it finds its origin in God Almighty. And just as you and I breathe out the words we speak, the words of the Bible are the very words. It is the breath of God Himself. And having said that, I need to make it clear that the Bible didn't just fall out of heaven. Rather, the Lord moved on mortal men to write, to communicate, and to transcribe His Word. And in fact, ironically, this offers one of the greatest evidences that the Bible is truly inspired by God because, you see, the Bible is not a single book written by a single author like the Koran, like the Book of Mormon. 
It's a compilation of books written by 40 different authors from three different continents in three different languages over a period of 1,600 years. The 66 books are divided into 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. And in the Bible, there is historical narrative, there is poetry, there is prophecy, there is biography, and there are letters. And within these books, you will find a single, incredible, unifying theme. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the story of the Creator, God's plan to rescue and redeem and restore His people to Himself. And there's far too much to say in the little amount of time we've got here this morning. And I sincerely hope that your head doesn't explode before we're done today. Because I want to persuade you that the Word is God-breathed. So let me condense it down to three simple words. Here they are. Science, history, and prophecy. First, science. The Bible revealed scientific facts hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before science learned them. And while it's true that the Bible was not written as a scientific book to speak to your mind, but rather as a love letter to speak to your heart, when the Bible speaks of scientific matters, it speaks with authority. It speaks with certainty. It speaks with accuracy. Now, every once in a while, you'll hear about modern science disagreeing with the Bible. When we hear that, what should we do? What should we do when that happens? Just be patient and give science time to catch up. Science has always needed time to catch up to the Bible. Think about it. As recently as 1600, doctors and scientists believed that many ailments and diseases were a result of the human body having too much blood. You know the red and white poles outside barber shops? Do you know those were originally used to mark the places where you could go in and be bled? So, President George Washington became ill. His doctors bled him three times. The third time, they removed almost a quart of blood, and he died. And, of course, in more recent years, politicians have turned the tables, and now they bleed us. <laughs> That's a joke. Now, science knows today that you don't drain people's blood. It's the blood that actually fights disease. It's the blood that repairs tissue. It's the blood that promotes growth. If only in 1600, before they operated on President George Washington, they had studied Leviticus 17.11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. In the 14th century, you remember the Black Plague, the bubonic Plague, decimated the population of Europe? One out of every four people died. Listen, it was not the scientists who brought it under control. It was the church that applied a principle that was unheard of in that day, but something we routinely practice today. It's quarantine. Look at Leviticus 13.46. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. People in Moses' day 
They didn't know anything about microbiology. They didn't know anything about germs or viruses. But God instructed His people in the principle of quarantine. In the 1800s in Vienna, a physician named Semmelweis was in charge of a hospital there. Pregnant women were coming in for routine exams, and many of them were dying of a mysterious infection. And Semmelweis noticed that the doctors were coming into the OB area from the morgue where they had been performing autopsies, and then they did not wash their hands before examining the pregnant women. And so he made the rule. Doctors had to wash their hands, and the doctors had a fit. They thought he was insane. They literally wanted to lock him up and throw away the key. But the medical field knows today to meticulously wash up. Science caught up with the Bible. It was already in Numbers 19.8. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water. Then they will be clean. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they must be cut off from Israel. Their uncleanness remains on them. Well, Moses knew all of these things and more. How? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. That's why. Think about it for a moment. Where was Moses from? Moses was from Egypt, and Egypt was the leader in the medical trade in Moses' day. They were considered to be brilliant, but, but the medical knowledge of Moses far exceeded that of the Egyptians. You know, in 1855, archaeologists found an Egyptian medical book, and here is some of their ancient scientific brilliance. This is in Egypt back in the day. To keep your hair from turning gray, anoint your head with the blood of a black cat boiled in oil. Okay? All right. To cure baldness, tune-up men, to cure baldness, Mix the fat of a snake and the tooth of a donkey crushed in honey, and, and you eat it. That's for baldness. See, I could come up with something like this myself to cure baldness. Listen, just soak your head in persimmon juice. You won't grow hair, but it'll shrink your head to fit the hair you've got. See? <laughs> See, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Moses didn't prefer the Egyptian science of his day to God's Word? And when, when you read the dietary code, you read the sanitary code of Moses as it's recorded in the Bible, you find it is without medical contradiction today. Why is that? But friends, it's because all Scripture is God-breathed. That's why. And Science includes not only medicine, but also astronomy. Look at what Job said in Job 26, verse 7. He said, God stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. But Egyptians believed that the earth was supported by five marble pillars. And the Greeks believed that it rested on the shoulders of the mythical god Atlas. These were serious scientific positions. Hindus believed the earth rested on the backs of elephants, 
And when they walked and shook, that was what caused earthquakes. So how did, how did Job know the truth about the cosmos 8,000 years ago? It had to be supernaturally revealed. It had to be God-breathed. In 150 B.C., an astronomer named Hipparchus put away his pencil and he said, it's done. He had successfully counted all the stars in the sky. There were 100, or 1,022 of them. A few years later, a scientist named Ptolemy came along and he said, that's absurd, that's ridiculous. There are 1,026. But what did the Bible say long before either of them was born? Jeremiah 33, 22 records, The stars in the heavens are numberless. They cannot be counted. Well, along came Galileo with the first crude telescope. He put his eye up to it, and he gasped. Of course, we now know that there are billions and billions of stars in each of the galaxies. Every time we get a more powerful telescope, we find out there's more out there. So listen. Science has always needed time to catch up with the Bible. Okay, what about that second word I mentioned up front as evidence that all Scripture is God-breathed? It is the word history. And again, the Bible is not a history book, but it is historically accurate. The Bible records that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Jesus verified it in the New Testament. And for years, historians laughed at that idea. They scorned that idea. They said it's impossible. There was no written language when Moses lived. But in 1887, in North Egypt, 300 clay tablets were unearthed. They were letters and business transactions between Egyptians and Palestinians predating the birth of Moses. So they not only had a written language, they even had a postal service. You remember the story in Scripture of Daniel in the court of Belshazzar? Historians said for years, there's no such person as Belshazzar. Nabonitus was the last king of Babylon. But one day, a clay tablet was found by archaeologists which revealed that Nabonitus had a son named Belshazzar, and they were actually co-regents for a time. And I know what that means. That means that the old man was out traveling the world and playing golf, and his son Belshazzar ruled the kingdom. Isn't it terrific how God providentially confirms His truth? In the late 1800s, Sir William Ramsey, well-known archaeologist and historian, considered to be the world's most eminent scholar on Asia Minor. He read the book of Acts, and here's what he said. Based on my knowledge of history, I have no respect for Luke as a historian. He went to the Middle East to disprove and discredit the history of the Bible, especially the book of Acts. He came back to the States, and he wrote the book, Luke, the Beloved Physician in which he proclaimed Luke to be one of the world's foremost historians. Here are his words. I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in regards to its trustworthiness. you got to admire a guy who goes on record one way and then comes back and admits that he was wrong. I love the honesty. 
you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. So history, like science, just needs time to catch up. Well, one more word to consider, and it's perhaps the most compelling evidence that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is the word prophecy. And we don't have time to do it justice here this morning, but let me just say that no book in history has dared to predict the future to the degree the Bible has without ever being proven wrong. For the sake of time, I've got to narrow it down to just a handful of the prophecies that dealt with the coming of Christ. So, we're talking about 21 centuries ago. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it said the Messiah would be born, a Savior would be born of a virgin. Boom. Luke chapter 1, verse 7, it happened. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, testified he would be born in Bethlehem. Luke 2, 4, it happened, and no one has any control over where they're born. Genesis 49, 10, he would be born of the tribe of Judah. Nobody has control over that. Matthew 3, 3, it happened. Psalm 78, verse 2, said that he would speak in parables. Matthew 13, 3, it happened. Isaiah 61, 1, testifies he would heal the brokenhearted. Luke 4, 18, it happened. Isaiah 53, 3, said he would be rejected by his own people. John 1, 11, it happened. Zechariah 11:12 said he would be betrayed for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 15, it happened. Isaiah 53, 7 said he would be silent before his accusers. Mark 15, 5, it happened. Psalm 22, verse 18 said they would cast lots for his garments. John 19, 24, it happened. Psalm 22, 16, hundreds of years before crucifixion, crucifixion was ever even invented as a form of punishment, said his hands and feet would be pierced. And John 19, 37, it happened. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words spoken by the Messiah, the Savior, in Matthew 27, Jesus from the cross, verse 46, it happened. Isaiah 53, verse 9, said he would be buried with the rich. Mark 15, 45, it happened. Charles Ryrie, Dr. Charles Ryrie, points out that by the law of chance, it would require, now here's where your head's going to explode. <laughs> it would require 200 billion earths, each populated with 4 billion people, to come up with one person who could achieve 100 prophecies without any errors in sequence. But in Christ's coming alone, there were not 100. There were over 300 prophecies fulfilled. So, cover the state of Texas with quarters. Are you ready for this? Cover the state of Texas with quarters two feet deep. Mark the back of only one of them with an X. Fly a man in and drop him anywhere in the state of Texas blindfolded and ask him to find that quarter with the X on his first try. Well, that's the same chance of just eight of selected Bible prophecies being fulfilled by coincidence. The testimony of the Bible, friends, is 
more than coincidence, as Josh McDowell would say. It is evidence that demands a verdict. So, so what would be your verdict here this morning? If you would consider yourself to be a skeptic, if you would consider yourself to be an unbeliever, if you would consider yourself to be a doubter today, what is your verdict? The Bible is scientifically accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is prophetically accurate. How can that be? Because it is God-breathed. And so it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, all to benefit us, all to benefit us. That's why we have the Bible for our benefit, to benefit the people whom he loves, his people whom he wants to save, his people whom he wants to bless abundantly, his people whom he wants, with whom he wants to spend eternity. And these God-breathed scriptures are able to make us all wise for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus. And I'm reminded of the fact that the Bible really will not be special to any person who has never experienced a new birth, who's never been born again, who's not a child of God. It's no mystery to me that people can read it and flippantly marginalize it. Because nothing's happened to their heads, nothing's happened to their hearts for them to be able to tune in to its message. And so we want to close with prayer, and before this service is over, we'll give you an opportunity to respond if you want to, if you're ready to. Will you stand with me right now as we pray? Father, we thank you, Lord, for communicating with us because we know that communication is the basis of any relationship. And you have spoken. You have spoken to us eloquently, powerfully, clearly through your word. Thank you. And we are grateful that we have the testimony of science and history and prophecy to confirm the word as being God-breathed. And so, Father, we thank you for this book. It is the rock under our feet. It teaches us how to think about things and how to act and react, how to live abundantly and eternally. And so uh, we pray that every heart here today will give it a strong embrace. In Jesus' name. Amen.